Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shri Vanglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by David Fischel, who's the CEO and Chairman of the Board for Stereotaxis, which provides robotic technologies for treating cardiac arrhythmias, among other interventional procedures. Before Stereotaxis, David had a long career as an investor and research analyst for healthcare and life science companies. So David, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. So how does an investor go from obviously investing and looking at the healthcare industry to then being CEO of a highly advanced robotics company? So I, I worked for, for many years prior to coming to Stereotaxis as an investor of medical device companies. And as an investor, we were always passive fundamental investors in companies. So we would research the universe of medical device companies out there, try to find hidden gems, but were undiscovered by others. And, and as part of that searching, we came across Stereotaxis, and they had developed a highly futuristic technology that actually worked in the real world and that had very good clinical data, but for business reasons had kind of lost its way and, and was almost going out of business. And kind of, and we were intrigued by the technology and by the clinical data enough that we decided to, to step out of our comfort zone to become actually active investors and took board seats. And, and very shortly after that investment, I stepped in also to operate the company. That's the transition from wearing purely the investor hat to wearing both the investor and the, the operator hat. That's that's fantastic. And so can you tell us a bit more about like what Stereotaxis does? Like what what made you so bullish on the technology? And I know I, I heard earlier that there's about 100 different places where you've already installed the device. Yeah. So at its core, Stereotaxis has a robotic system that allows you to navigate interventional devices, interventional catheters with greater precision and with greater safety. If you think about the broad field of endovascular surgery, interventional medicine, where a device is navigated through the bloodstream in order to diagnose or treat the disease, in all of those procedures, you're, you're handling flexible tools that have to navigate twists and turns of the body. And the control of those tools happens at the handle, at the access site, usually near the femoral access site in the leg, sometimes in the radial access in arms. And yet the actual therapy is being delivered two, three, four feet away from the, from the access site. And the mechanism of translating control from the handle of the catheter to the tip is, is not perfect at all. It relies on rigidity of the plastic shaft. It relies on pull wires. There's all sorts of translation errors that happen from the handle to the tip. So what Stereotexas did is that they had this creative idea of using magnetic fields, almost as if these, as these kind of invisible fingers. And so our robot are actually computer-controlled magnets on mechanical arms. Those magnets are, the robots are on both sides of the patient's shoulders in the operating room. And then from a physician from a computer control station can control the magnetic field where a patient's chest is, and by doing so, actually take control of a catheter and move it directly from the tip. And when you do that, you have a level of precision and stability and reach that is otherwise impossible. You also don't need to develop them catheters that are rigid. You can have catheters that are very soft, very gentle. And so that's really kind of at its core, that's, uh, that's our technology. That's how we look to improve medicine. Stereotaxis has about 100 of these systems out there in the world. And so there was substantial real-world validation that the technology works in a robust fashion. And there was also very attractive clinical data. So as an investor, 
when you invest in medicine, you always want to ask yourself, if God forbid someone in my family, someone I know had this disease, would I want them to be treated with this drug or this device? And kind of all of us, as we were looking at stereotaxis, we said, if God forbid someone in our family had to have a cardiac ablation procedure done to treat an arrhythmia, there wasn't a question that we would want them treated robotically. At its core, that's an important part of the due diligence. That's a, that's a fantastic way of looking at it. So there's so many applications for this type of technology. I know you've done a lot in arrhythmia, in heart valve. What are some of the core things that make you most proud of, of how stereotaxis has been applied? Any stories you can share as well as generally the range of procedures that the technology has enabled? Yeah, so we're actually still a relatively small company. And so we're focused really on one clinical application, which is treating arrhythmias, cardiac ablation. I think that the technology has that platform capability to also positively impact other diseases. But for that, we would have to develop alternative interventional devices with magnets on them that could be navigated by the robot. And and kind of wherever you see clinical care being beyond what it should be, or difficulties with reach or precision or safety, that's really where we would shine. And so there's a range of both endovascular and endoluminal applications that I think would be exciting. I've been asked sometimes in the past, and I've kind of mentioned things like stroke as being an area which is particularly fascinating, given that most stroke patients really have no interventional therapy provided to them. Over just the last decade, you've seen more and more use of interventions to pull out clots for ischemic stroke. And still, most patients aren't great candidate for that therapy, given the difficulty of accessing the clot. In cardiac ablation, I'd say the most exciting thing and the most kind of, I guess, intrinsically rewarding thing is being able to treat a whole range of patients that otherwise wouldn't wouldn't be good candidates at all for cardiac ablation therapy. And so we have several physicians around the world that use us to treat very complex congenital patients. You know, children who were born with heart defects had to have all sorts of surgeries as children. Most of them, then as they grow up, have an arrhythmia because of the surgeries that they were placed under as a child. And because of their different anatomy, manual catheters can't actually treat them. And so they're left with either subpar drug therapies or with our system, there's several physicians that have been able to do magical kind of treatments that otherwise wouldn't be possible. So I think kind of the the ability to push the boundaries of medicine beyond what is otherwise possible, that is intrinsically rewarding. I can imagine so. I mean, that word magical resonates with me. I don't know if you're familiar with Arthur Clarke, the science fiction writer, but he had a series of three laws, one of which was any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So that kind of resonates. So when I was in medical school, you know, uh, first two years of med school, I, I did some shadowing, sitting with a neurosurgeon and then also in the simulation center. And I remember one of the coolest experiences was, you know, trying to suture with probably the biggest market cap robotic device company, Da Vinci Surgical Robots. And it takes a lot of training to get to that point. How do you approach, you know, something so innovative and futuristic that is at a hundred sites, a couple hundred physicians have been trained on it. How do you approach both educating your providers, the surgeons, as well as educating the patients who would have to obviously go through informed consent to use this advanced technology? So in terms of educating physicians, you're right. That's at the core of kind of our our business lives off of physicians adopting the technology, uh, using it. And so Training is a big part of our business. 
inherently navigating robotically is actually easier than navigating by hand because it's not at all intuitive if you're if you're holding onto a catheter it's not at all intuitive that you want the catheter to turn right and you should do this type of motion with your fingers and wrists and arms but physicians learn it because they do hundreds of procedures during residency during fellowship they learn that type of muscle memory and and kind of and so you have to almost learn something that's easier but you have to unlearn some of what you've learned before when you when you shift to robotics we've done various things to try to help the learning process so we have a beyond team that helps in the initial procedures and does training with physicians we have actually built simulators which allow physicians from their home computer they can log in and they can navigate with a mouse and and kind of learn how to navigate a catheter in a phantom we also started a fellowship program and so we've tried kind of these various ways what you have is that typically the younger the physician the quicker they they can get on it and they can they can learn it very very quickly because again intuitively it's a it's an easier form of navigation than manual navigation yeah and i, I can imagine that's pretty fascinating and then so so that's on the, the i didn't know about the fellowship program that's pretty pretty interesting how about for patients you know a patient who's considering a cardiac ablation using the traditional method or stereotaxis uh, technology? So that's actually a great question to give back to you because as the, the CEO of osmosis, right, to some extent, one of your big efforts is to democratize knowledge, right, to, to make knowledge accessible much more broadly. And I think we've lived in this historical world where it's obviously been gradually transitioning, but years ago, to some extent, whatever the physician prescribed, that was it. There wasn't a real way for a patient to do their own due diligence to kind of to learn what was out there. We've shifted much more where patients are smart consumers and they want to understand and they want to do their own due diligence and they want to explore. And so as part of that, we have been trying to improve our, our website, trying to improve our social media presence. We have videos on YouTube that, that describe how kind of a robotic procedure exists. And I'm very much kind of of the philosophy that open access to information is ultimately the best policy. And so let's say what we did is there's about 400 or so, a little bit over 400 publications, scientific publications on our technology. We put them all online on a searchable database. We included all the clinical data online, again, with the goal of kind of having open access to information. Again, it's very difficult. We're a small company. The field is dominated by companies that are two orders of magnitude larger than us, just their electrophysiology divisions, let alone the overall company, which is three, four orders of magnitude larger than us. And so kind of we have a small megaphone. So you do it in kind of in your own way by providing open access to information, uh, by celebrating the hospitals and the physicians that use our technology. Totally. And I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with kind of the democratization and consumerization of healthcare. As long as we get informed consumers, I think then they'll make the right decisions that are guided by, you know, clinicians regardless. One of our recent guests is Dr. Asim Desai, who is a, maybe you know of him. He wrote the book, Restart Your Heart, the playbook for thriving with AFib. And so he's definitely someone I would like to send your episode to directly. And then, by the way, he's based in Southern California, and he actually has used our, our technology at Mission Hospital in Orange County for probably nearly a decade. And so he's, he knows our technology very well. He's been a great supporter for many years in advancing the technology and advancing the clinical understanding. That's awesome. I actually didn't know that connection. So 
that's great. I'll definitely make make a note of that. And then another person we're going to have in a couple of weeks is a friend of mine, an orthopedic surgeon named Dr. Justin Barad, who started Oslo VR, which is a virtual reality training company. So some potentially an interesting connection for you because like any in-person training, whether it's the fellowship on robotic nav, as you're talking about, one way to get more and more clinicians to be trained up is to give them the virtual reality access or those sim centers type experiences. So have you guys explored, explored that virtual reality training for your devices too? We have less virtual reality training because our procedure is being performed on a screen with a mouse and keyboard. So to some extent, you could do it on any laptop, any computer. And that's why we built simulators instead. One thing that's interesting, if you think about kind of the benefits of robotics with, let's say, the Da Vinci system in laparoscopic surgery, or if you look at the orthopedic surgical robots, or if you look at our robot, typically what we've talked to date of the benefits are the the mechanistic benefits, precision, stability, safety. I think there's a whole class of benefits beyond those mechanistic benefits that are only kind of at the earliest stages of being tapped. And that's that once you put information, once you digitize operating room information and you put the physician behind a computer, you allow for a whole range of additional capabilities and tools that can enhance surgery. I call it kind of the digital surgery revolution, where you can provide data during a procedure. You can provide different image integrations uh, that might not otherwise have been possible. You can provide things like remote support. There's a different level then of that. You take the operating room from being a very isolated place in space to being kind of a, a digital kind of theater. And so that's kind of something where VR, perhaps in the future, perhaps as VR also improves over time and the tools at our disposal improve over time and might become also much more interesting. That's really fascinating. I think a lot about, you know, unmanned aerial vehicles and how, you know, for years people had to train to become pilots. And then now they're basically playing a video game, being able to fly these very complex pieces of, of machinery in the air maybe even around from a totally different country or continent where they're seated. I'm curious, is that sort of the vision you all see as well, where this can go is maybe given the boom COVID has had on telemedicine, that eventually with technologies like yours, maybe a, a very skilled physician, surgeon could be sitting in, in Arizona and then doing surgery with in an operating theater in Africa with maybe some other surgeons in there who they're helping teach along the way. One of the most interesting kind of things that have taken place over the last six months, given the pandemic, has been this broader acceptance of the concept of remote working, remote learning, telemedicine. And Stereo Texas has always had a capability to, or at least for, for many years now, five, 10 years, to remotely support physicians during their procedures. So we have a team that actually sits remote and can see everything that the physician sees on the computer screen, the x-rays, the ECGs, the maps, ultrasound images, can kind of see that, that collective set of screens in the operating room and can then provide remote technical and clinical support for a procedure. We obviously saw the acceptance of that type of support kind of go up significantly during kind of the March, April, May timeframe. And we also rolled it out much more broadly across our entire uh, clinical support team. And kind of when we think about telemedicine, I think robotics serves as kind of almost a, almost a necessary foundation for the future of telemedicine. And we think about telemedicine actually along a spectrum. We're kind of in the most practical happening today 
to the most kind of futuristic is the first is telerobotic support, you know, industry supporting procedures remotely. And that doesn't have to be necessarily at the expense of in-person support, but it allows you to also have different layers of support. There's always, there's a limit to how much any individual industry rep can know. Now you can have layers of support where suddenly there's an issue or there's a clinical question. You can have kind of multiple layers of a higher level support available. So that's kind of the first. The second is telerobotic collaboration, enabling physicians to work together and to share best practices, to learn from each other. And we've actually seen kind of more of that also take place with uh, certain hospitals uh, and sometimes between hospitals using the same network that we use for support, but using it to collaborate. And then the third step is what you were talking about, which is actual remote procedures. Physician, you know, in one location, treating patients who are in another location. And We've had several of these cases. So actually in, uh, in July, uh, we hosted a telerobotic symposium and a physician in Portugal and a physician in Italy, each one were treating a local patient and at the same time helping the other treat a patient at their respective location. And so that kind of showed that you could navigate catheters remotely without any particularly complicated IT setup using kind of our connectivity technology and kind of been demonstrated both the benefits of telerobotic collaboration and telerobotic procedures. Over time, we have heard from many physicians that practically that would be beneficial in that still there is a difference in the level of care that is provided when you have physicians who have a lot of experience in a procedure versus physicians who rarely treat a specific type of arrhythmia in our case. And so being able to allow patients, irrespective of the location, to get the same level of care would be of great benefit overall. It's kind of, again, democratizing access to care. And so that's kind of something where I think over time we will see more of, it's less a technological question, it's more of a societal question. Does society accept that? What questions does that raise in terms of liability, in terms of consent, in terms of reimbursement? And so I think those are things for society and for kind of uh, governments and insurers and, and service providers they'll kind of have to think much more about that in the coming years. That's a fascinating breakdown. I hadn't heard it laid out in that spectrum, but we've had a lot of telemedicine guests over the past few months on Raise Line. And the reason we call it Raise Line is because it's all about increasing health capacity, which is clearly the vision you're laying out, one way to do that. You don't need a the most specialized surgeon in every rural hospital, but you got a core of them who are capable of working with people in those rural settings and providing them care, increasing healthcare capacity. So that's a fascinating and interesting vision. Do you ever see it going to the point of someone who isn't necessarily even surgically trained? Again, like in the pilot example, there are people who are controlling the UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, who've never flown planes before. Do you ever see that happening? That's probably a societal question, but... Well, so I, I think kind of, you have to step back and ask, what's the role of a physician? I think kind of most let's call it surgeons or procedural physicians, right? They have two big skills. They have a cognitive skill, which is somehow being able to determine what should they do to treat the patient. In the case of an electrophysiologist doing a cardiac ablation procedure, they have to look at ECGs. They have to look at a map. They have to understand the patient's kind of arrhythmia, and they have to try to determine what is the best way to treat that patient. And then you have a mechanical skill, which is Given your, what you know about the patient, how you want to treat them, can you get the tools at your disposal to actually execute as you wish? And the whole role of robotics is to reduce as much as possible the, the need on the mechanical side 
and allow you to focus as much of your energy and time and effort on the cognitive side. And I think when you do that, you enhance the physician, you make them kind of a, not a plumber, you make them a thinker, right? A strategizer, a designer of the therapy. And it's better for the patient because as a patient, I want my physician to put all their attention to thinking about me, not to them thinking about how it's hurting their back now that they've been standing up for six hours today. So I think kind of that's really kind of one of the big goals of medicine. Again, could you see a future where if robotics was ubiquitous, where a physician wouldn't have to learn at all how to do manual navigation of a catheter and they could just learn the cognitive aspect and they could just be sitting remotely and that's the way things happen? Yeah, probably. We're probably still decades away from that type of reality, but you have now many radiologists who almost their entire profession, they're, they're seated at a computer at home or, or in an office and, and they're just reading scans. And, and to some extent, you know, is it possible that things evolve that way? Yeah, that's possible. Yeah, it's a fascinating vision to think about. And another quote I like is that the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And so clearly some of the stuff that you guys are doing out in St. Louis is, uh, is the future. It just it hasn't reached as many people as I think it's capable of. So I know we're coming up in time, but the last two questions I had for you were, the first is our audience are current and future healthcare professionals at Osmosis. What advice would you give to somebody considering a career as a healthcare professional, especially given all that's happened this year with COVID and moving forward? That's a very, very broad question. Medicine is intrinsically interesting. It's an intrinsically rewarding profession, so it requires a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of dedication to go into, but it's an intrinsically rewarding one. I think both because it's a, it's fascinating, human biology is fascinating, and because it's rewarding to, to treat disease. I think kind of coming from the industry side, what I'd say is that technologies only get improved due to the learning and the interaction between scientists kind of and, and developers and good physicians. And so kind of it's great if you have the kind of interest in it, it's great to kind of to be involved, to try to kind of see how to almost put on like an investor hat. How do you think your field of medicine is going to evolve over the next 10, 15 years, right? Try to kind of find the innovators that are working on those types of technologies and then try to kind of handhold them down that path. Real progress only happens when the two work together in a good fashion. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point and interesting to analogy of having people who are pursuing careers in healthcare to think of themselves as investors, where they invest in becoming a radiologist, for example, given all that's happening with AI and, and whatnot. So my last question is, is there anything else you'd like our audience to know about you, about the work that you're doing at Stereotaxis or anything else? It's very hard to answer broad questions. So, so no, I think it's delighted kind of uh, got to join you today. And it's nice to kind of to, to be able to connect with kind of the next generation of kind of leaders in healthcare. Again, we're kind of collectively, we're all little soldiers in kind of in a big battle to kind of push. I think when you're kind of talking about raising the line, I think you you came up with that really because of kind of COVID and because of the concept of increasing capacity, increasing this. I oftentimes think about medicine as this large, large front where as still it's miserable being a patient, right? It's, it's still kind of all of us are going to suffer. Our family members are going to suffer from a range of diseases. And overall, there's still a, a huge amount of unmet medical need out there. And so you can almost envision this front where every disease, every, every small, very specific disease is one little 
and part of that front. And our role is to continuously to move pawns forward. And sometimes you get something like uh, a statins and it moves many pawns a little bit forward. And sometimes you get a really good targeted therapy for a specific type of cancer and it moves one pawn all the way forward to the finish line. But kind of there's still a, a big battle out there and all of us are a part of that war to kind of to improve human health. I love that analogy. That's, that's really interesting. And hopefully we can all not just raise the line, but push the line forward, as you're saying. So with that, David, thanks so much for not only taking the time to be with us today, but for your leadership on the robotic surgery front. Very excited to kind of follow Stereotax's progress and to see uh, what other conditions you're able to help improve with the work that you and your team are doing. Thank you. With that, I'm Shivaglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.